This is the end of the Acts of the Apostles. Now, it certainly isn't the end of what we'd like to know. It seems fairly clear that Luke wrote this account while staying with Paul in Rome, awaiting his trial before Caesar. Whether he intended to write more or whether he intended to write a second volume or not, of course, we'll never know. As for what happened to Paul, church history says that he made a brief defense and then was discharged. It seems that his accusers never made the trip to Rome and the charges against him were dropped. Clement and Eusebius both say that Paul was released and resumed his missionary travels, taking the gospel to the westernmost parts of the Roman Empire. He was then rearrested and transported back to Rome. It was at that time that he wrote what we believe to have been his last letter, the letter known to us as 2 Timothy. Shortly thereafter, he was taken outside the city and executed by beheading on a milepost on the Ostian Way in or around the year A.D. 68. But the book of Acts is not a biography of Paul. It is the story of the spread and triumph of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the story of how this message of the kingdom was preached first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, Samaria, and in all the world. That is the story that Luke promised to tell us. And by the grace of God, that is the story that we've been told. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. This week, we come to the end of our journey together through the book of Acts. We have seen the gospel preached in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and here in chapter 28, in the world city of Rome. This isn't the end of the gospel mission, but it is the end of the first chapter, we might say. Through it all, the Lord has been faithful and we trust he will be faithful still in the future as we complete this story together. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 28. This chapter concludes the voyage of Paul from Caesarea to Rome, and it tells about his climactic encounter with the Jews there and his subsequent resolution to move full steam ahead in his outreach to the Gentiles. When we left off the story in chapter 27, Paul and his companions had been brought safely through a terrible storm and had run their ship aground upon a reef just off an island. And by the grace of God, they had all managed to swim or float ashore. Thus, Luke records, they were all brought safely to land. Thanks be to God. We pick up the story at verse 1 of chapter 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. 
The people of Malta were Phoenician by ethnicity, and Luke refers to them actually as barbarians in the Greek, translated into our Bibles as natives. The word wasn't necessarily pejorative, it just referred to people who didn't speak Greek. These were simple folks, and they showed simple kindness to the sailors, the soldiers, and in particular to those traveling with the Apostle Paul. Of course, as Luke tells us, they were also a little bit prone to superstition. And when Paul was bitten by a snake, they assumed that the gods must have been intent upon his destruction. But Paul shook off the snake and suffered no harm. Luke doesn't tell us whether this was a miracle or simply a misunderstanding. Perhaps the snake wasn't poisonous after all. Scholars debate as to whether Luke has included this little story as further proof of the divine protection that Paul enjoyed or as further evidence of the desperate need that people have for the life-changing truth of the gospel. Meaning, is this a story about Paul, or is this a story about people who are fickle and superstitious and silly and desperately need to be saved and filled with the light of the gospel? My guess is that it's a bit of both. Verse 7. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Publius would have been the Roman governor of the island. He would have spoken Greek and Latin, and he would have been obligated to some extent to show hospitality to this party that was traveling on Roman business. Nevertheless, Luke comments favorably upon his attitude and disposition towards them. Again, this foreshadows some of the favor that Paul enjoyed within the Gentile world. The Jews, his own people, were chasing him all across the empire, But wherever Paul went among the Gentiles, he was remarkably, even miraculously well-received. Might be worth noticing here also the absence of mechanics and theatrics in his healing of Publius's father. Paul doesn't shout at the fever. He doesn't douse the man in olive oil or chant over him in Hebrew. He just prays for him and lays hands on him and he is healed. When this had taken place, the people of the island gathered about, and they, too, were prayed for and healed, and thus the party was greatly honored, celebrated, and generously provisioned for the next stage of the journey. Verse 11 tells the story. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. Syracuse is a port city on the island of Sicily, verse 13. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. Regium is the southernmost port on the toe part of Italy. Verse 13 continues. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Purioli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Again, Paul is a Roman citizen and unconvicted. 
and therefore subject to the protections and privileges of the law. He's allowed to rent an apartment or a house and to stay there at his own expense, provided that he was accompanied by a guard. Verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect we know that everywhere it is spoken against. It is interesting to note that Paul's and Luke's interest and focus here at the end of the story is not perhaps what we would have anticipated. Paul is in Rome to testify before Caesar, and yet his immediate concern is to testify before the Jews. It is to them that he makes an immediate appeal. Paul's heart is clearly committed to the conversion of his people. And Luke clearly understands this meeting as representing some kind of climactic turning point. I. Howard Marshall puts it this way, The impression conveyed is that Paul felt throughout his ministry the duty to go first to the Jews, and that it was when they refused the message that he went to the Gentiles. All this fits in with the emotional expression of Paul's feelings regarding his call in Romans 9-11. It also gives a climax to the book in that the missionary program of Acts 1-8 is now brought to a decisive point. The gospel has come to the capital city, and it is proclaimed without hindrance to the Gentiles. The church is on the brink of further expansion, with Paul's hope of reaching Spain in the background and indicating the direction for further advance. The church is thus given its marching orders. Rome is a stage on the way and not the final goal. In principle, It is free to ignore the Jews, at least for the time being, and to go to the Gentiles. So, in a sense, the book of Acts brings the first chapter of the Great Commission story to a close. In the first chapter, the message went first to the people of Israel, and only after that was extended to the Gentiles. But now, with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem having rejected Paul, and as we shall soon see, the Jewish leaders of the Diaspora having rejected Paul, the church enters a new phase, the Great Commission 2.0, you might say. From now on, the focus will be on the Gentiles. Of course, that doesn't mean that there's no hope for the Jews. Paul explores that issue in Romans 9-11. to There is a Great Commission 3.0 that will include the regrafting in of the Jews and that will result in a great blessing and miraculous end times harvest. But that's a story for another day. The book of Acts takes us only to the end of 1.0. This is the end of the first chapter, we might say. But of course, there are several chapters still to go. But we get ahead of ourselves. The story of Paul's climactic meeting with the Jews in Rome is narrated now beginning at verse 23. 
Pastor Paul, just before we get into the story of Paul's meeting with the Jews in Rome, I'd like to pause, if I can, and go back to something you were just talking about there in the program audio. You mentioned there that Paul seems to have cherished a hope for a great future work of conversion amongst the Jewish people. Even as we are about to read about his immediate frustration with the current unbelief of the Jewish people. So unpack that for us a little bit. What did Paul believe would happen? What hope did he have for the Jewish people? Did he believe that the Jewish people as a whole would turn to Jesus? And if so, when did he expect that to happen? Well, that's a really complicated question. And not all scholars and commentators are in agreement here. But it seems to me that Paul does seem to have expected the hardness of the Jewish people to the gospel to be temporary in nature. He saw a break in fellowship in his day, but he does not appear to have believed that that break would be permanent. So, for example, in Romans 11.2, he said, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. By rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ and by rejecting the Messiah that God had sent, the Jewish people placed themselves outside the kingdom of God. But Paul seemed to harbor strong hopes that they would eventually be welcomed back in, that they would eventually come to faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Well, but let me interrupt here for a second if I can. Why is it, do you think, that the Jewish people rejected Jesus in the first place? I mean, it seems like knowing all they did about the Old Testament, that they should have been the most likely people to embrace Jesus, but by and large, they weren't, as we see here in Acts 28. Why is that? Well, Paul gives three answers to that question in his letter to the Romans. He said, first of all, that the Jewish people, by and large, wanted to earn their salvation through works of the law, as opposed to receiving salvation as a gift of grace through Jesus. So in Romans 10.3, he says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Close quote. Therefore, he says, that God gave them over to unbelief. He let them go. He hardened them, just like in the case of Pharaoh back in the book of Exodus. So Paul says that in Romans 11.8. He says, God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day, closed quote. So there's a supernatural element to their unbelief as well. But then thirdly, Paul says that in some way, their unbelief actually serves the belief of the Gentiles. So in Romans 11.11, he says, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, closed quote. Yeah, so help me understand that, because I don't get it. How does the rejection of Christianity by the Jewish people serve the cause of the gospel among the Gentiles? Well, the sense seems to be that had Christianity stayed within Judaism, it would have become basically an ethnic religion, like how Hinduism is by and large a religion made up of people in India and people of Indian descent living elsewhere. You don't meet too many Mexican Hindus or German Hindus. Hinduism is a religion associated primarily with a single ethnic group. And had Christianity been initially and fulsomely adopted by the Jewish people, it may have been perceived that way by people in the Roman Empire as a Jewish sect. But within one human lifetime, Christianity had burst the bonds of Judaism and was majority Gentile. And it was able to present itself to the Roman population as a multi-ethnic faith. And historically speaking, that was very useful. 
Okay, so God hasn't completely and finally rejected the Jewish people, and there are reasons why the Jewish people did not and have not yet fully embraced Christianity. But what about the future? What does the Apostle Paul seem to believe about that? Right, well, that's where there is some disagreement. Not everyone agrees on the details, but it does seem to me, and to many others, that Paul foresees a day when the tide turns, so to speak. He speaks of a time in the future when the masses of converted Gentiles to a religion that sprang up from their soil, so to speak, will actually make the Jewish people jealous. They will turn and look at this thing that they've rejected, and they will see something beautiful and compelling. So Paul in Romans 11.11 says, Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous, close quote. So the sinful rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people results in salvation for the Gentiles. We talked about that. But then it eventually rebounds and makes them jealous. And Paul says that he's actually eager to contribute to that. In Romans 11, uh, verses 13 to 14, he says, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, close quote. He then says that he expects many Jewish people to be grafted back onto the covenant tree. He says in, a, in Romans eleven twenty four, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree, close quote. Now, does Paul give any indication as to when he thinks that will happen? Yes. In Romans eleven twenty five, he says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, close quote. So it sounds like sometime near the end of the Gentile mission, Paul expected the Jewish people to turn and embrace their Messiah. And it seems as though he connects that to the last great push to complete the Gentile mission. He says in Romans 11, 12, and 15, Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Close quote. In essence, he says, if the Gentile mission got started because of the rejection of the Jewish people, can you imagine what their acceptance will do? It will bring something about that can only be compared to a general resurrection. Wow, that sounds pretty good. It sounds really good. So at the end of the day, I think we should keep on taking the gospel to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth, and at the same time, praying that we would soon be joined in this work by our older brother, so that together we can complete the Great Commission. Hmm. Which Jesus said we would do before his return, right? Yeah, in Matthew 24, 14, he said, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So he didn't guarantee what the results would be, but he did say that we would get the message out to the whole world as a testimony to all nations before the end. So let's be striving toward that great and glorious objective. Absolutely. Amen. Thanks for walking us through that. Let's jump back into the story now and into that climactic meeting between the Apostle Paul and the Jewish leaders, beginning in verse 23 of Acts 28. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but 
others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Paul quotes to them here from the prophet Isaiah. In essence, Paul stands in solidarity with the prophet Isaiah. He says, just like him, I've been sent to preach to people who simply will not understand. It's it's not that you can't understand, he says. It's that you won't understand. You have hardened yourself to the point where you cannot see that which ought to be as obvious to you as the hand in front of your face. David Peterson says here, If those to whom the Spirit spoke through the prophet were ancestors of the Roman Jews, the implication is, like fathers, like children. The rejection of Isaiah and his message in the 8th century BC was followed by the rejection of Jesus and his message. Paul then shared with other Christian preachers in the rejection of Jesus by his own people. Both prophet and people are caught in a tragic situation For the prophet is commanded to speak to a people that cannot understand a seemingly hopeless task. Paul assumes this prophetic task. Closed quote. Again, Luke portrays Paul as a sort of New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament prophets. Paul is a a New Testament Isaiah. And like Isaiah, he has been commanded to preach to a people who will not understand. Thus, for the foreseeable future... The gospel will go to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Verse 30 says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the end of the Acts of the Apostles. Now, it certainly isn't the end of what we'd like to know. It seems fairly clear that Luke wrote this account while staying with Paul in Rome, awaiting his trial before Caesar. Whether he intended to write more or whether he intended to write a second volume or not, of course, we'll never know. As for what happened to Paul, church history says that he made a brief defense and then was discharged. It seems that his accusers never made the trip to Rome and the charges against him were dropped. Clement and Eusebius both say that Paul was released and resumed his missionary travels, taking the gospel to the westernmost parts of the Roman Empire. He was then rearrested and transported back to Rome. It was at that time that he wrote what we believe to have been his last letter, the letter known to us as Second Timothy. Shortly thereafter, he was taken outside the city and executed by beheading on a milepost on the Ostian Way in or around the year A.D. 68. But the book of Acts is not a biography of Paul. It is the story of the spread and triumph of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
It is the story of how this message of the kingdom was preached first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, Samaria, and in all the world. That is the story that Luke promised to tell us. And by the grace of God, that is the story that we've been told. The implicit challenge now is for each of us to pick up the mantle, to write our own Acts 29, you might say, to preach to our Jerusalem, to do as they did on Pentecost, to come down the stairs and out the front door of our houses and to preach the gospel to the people in our streets, in our neighborhoods, and in our towns. And then to branch further out and farther still, even to the ends of the world. That's the challenge. That is our mandate. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And well, that is all the time we have for today and all the time we have remaining in this series. Starting next week, we'll be working verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Proverbs. I'm really looking forward to that. As always, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 